This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are kicking off Season 7. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith and I teach at Loyola's Institute of Pastoral Studies. I'm here with Dan Haran who is Dunscotus Chair of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago and I'm very happy to welcome Heidi Schlumpf who is executive editor of the National Catholic Reporter and was a columnist for National Catholic Reporter for a number of years. She'll be joining us this season as well, and we are excited to have her here. Heidi, welcome, and Dan, welcome back. Thanks, David. I'm so excited to be part of the Francis Effect this season. David, good to see you. Good to see you, Heidi. Here we go, season seven. So I'd like to start out and bring listeners up to speed on what's going on here. So over the past six seasons, it's been mostly me and Dan, and occasionally we have brought in guests. But one of the things that we thought about doing for this season was to open up the conversation, because there are many perspectives about how one is a faithful Catholic in today's world. And we have noted oftentimes that we're two white guys, and we need to be broadening our perspectives about things. And so one of the one of the reasons that I'm excited that you're hi- that you're here, Heidi, is that you are going to bring some perspectives to our conversations that maybe we haven't thought of. Plus, you have a, a vista as executive editor of National Catholic Reporter that allows you to think about topics maybe in a way that I certainly haven't, and maybe Dan hasn't either. So I'm just very excited to have you here. Well, thank you. You know, I'm a longtime fan of the show, and I've been a guest before, so I'm really excited to be joining you guys. And what have you been doing this summer? How have things been going for you during the pandemic? Oh my, David, funny you should ask. It's been an interesting summer, hasn't it? I am married and have two kids. And so the four of us have been quarantining and spending a lot of family time together. We did a really smart thing and bought a above ground backyard pool. So we have been spending a lot of time in our backyard here in Chicago. We did take a couple vacations just to visit family. And I just returned late last night from the Jersey Shore. So I'm rested and ready to go. And Kids will start school next week. And so, Dan, tell me a little bit about what's been going on with you this summer. Well, David, it's great to be back. I can't believe we're doing season seven. Uh, Heidi, it's so great to have you with us. I'm excited, a friend of the podcast and regular contributor in the past, and so now regular presence this season. This is great. Yeah, I mean, our listeners have heard a little bit with our bonus episodes about the various experiences of, of the summer. And the big thing right now really is getting ready for the fall semester. 
at CTU, where, where I teach, as our listeners know, we've moved entirely online. And we have the advantage of doing that because we're a graduate school of theology. We're not residentially dependent like a lot of universities are that, that have been in the news of late. And so we're very blessed and very fortunate to be in that situation, but still a lot of work. It's it's a lot of adjustment. And uh, I found myself as the semester is getting underway, mourning the loss of not being in the same space and getting to know our new students in person. It's the first time we have a new cohort, a new group of students, many of whom I'll meet for the first time virtually. So I'm excited to be back in the virtual classroom, but it's a totally different experience. And that makes me think of something that I've been wanting to ask a reporter, and I haven't had a chance to yet. Heidi, how has the process of reporting and the practice of gathering news changed with the pandemic? Well, at NCR, it's gone relatively smoothly for us, in part because we had a virtual newsroom already. So I, before I was editor, I was the national correspondent reporting from here in Chicago, even though our publication is technically based in Kansas City. So a lot of the editors and behind the scenes folks very quickly moved to doing the virtual production of the news. For reporters, it is hard though. We've always done a lot of interviews by video chat or by phone, but the amount of things that have moved online and the inability to travel, which I really miss, and also to meet people in person has been hard for our reporters and also for me as a new editor. So I've only been editor for four months now and I really expected to be traveling around, meeting with staff and also meeting with other Catholics around the country and even the world. So you're starting to build your new role as an editor in sort of unprecedented circumstances. This is really new territory, not just for you, but for the publication and for everybody, isn't it? Yeah, I was literally announced the week before uh, lockdown with the pandemic. So I try not to take that timing personally, but it has been a challenge, but also it's amazing how people do step up and maybe in a business that is kind of about technology already, we've been pretty quick to adapt, I think. Well, and like Dan, I have been getting ready to start the semester. And in fact, the semester is underway for me already as we're recording this. We've done now two weeks worth of classes. And like Dan was saying, the lack of being face-to-face with students is a real change. But I will say... I'm very pleased with how well Institute of Pastoral Studies, where I teach, has been sort of thinking about the students first in all of this and trying not to stay with a rigid schedule and trying not to stay with kind of rigid expectations, but otherwise understanding that everybody's going to be a little crazy now and that nothing is going to be the kind of normal that we are expecting. So I've been really pleased by the flexibility. And a similar sort of thing with my family here. We're in a in a house that's big enough for all of us to be in separate rooms when we need to be, which I'm very thankful for. But for the most part, I mean, we've all gone a little crazy over the summer at one point or another and a lot of self-care. And in fact, Dan and I, in one of our bonus episodes over the summer, we talked about the process that my family uses to kind of come to decisions and to think about things. And one of the things that Dan pointed out is that the process is a lot like a monastic process, which I was just thrilled to hear because... <laughs> I believe that the Holy Spirit is a a much-needed entity at this time as we're all trying to figure out how to be in community together differently. Those are the family meetings you're talking about, right, David? Yeah, they are. And uh, it's an attempt to try and have a democratic process that involves our uh, nine-year-old and 10-year-old children in the running of the family so that we're not just dictating to them, you must do this, but they feel like they have a voice. And that works to varying degrees. But the most important thing, I think, in those family meetings is that we start out with a kind of check-in. We ask where everybody is and what they're doing and how they're doing. And um, that's been really helpful for me because even though we're all in the same house together, 
I don't always know what the other folks are thinking and they don't always know what I'm thinking. And so it's good to just stop and be like, wait, how are you doing? And that's partly what we're doing here at the start of uh, every episode of The Francis Effect. We stop and we check out how folks are doing. And so coming up today on the show, we are going to be talking about the recent political conventions, both the Republican and the Democratic conventions. We're going to be talking about how Catholics approach politics more generally. And we're going to be talking about what has been declared as the season of creation, a period from September 1st to the Feast of St. Francis. And so we'll be talking about that at the end of the show. But we're glad that you're here. And Heidi, I'm especially glad that you're here. You're listening to the Francis Effect podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about all sorts of things from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last month, many of us spent two weeks watching back-to-back the Democratic and Republican national conventions. The Democrats were supposed to meet in July in Milwaukee, but because of the coronavirus pandemic, the DNC event was rescheduled for August 17th through 20th and became the first, quote, virtual convention. It included pre-recorded videos, live speeches in empty or nearly empty rooms, and a creative roll call that felt like a mini tour of the country and the U.S.'s territories. The vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, accepted the nomination on Wednesday, and former Vice President Joe Biden gave an eloquent speech to cap the week on Thursday. The immediately following week, the GOP held its own convention, which originally was planned to take place in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then in Jacksonville, Florida, and then, well, back to Charlotte for the nomination business. But most of the speeches were held actually in Washington, D.C., despite controversy over Trump's acceptance speech at the White House lawn, raising questions about the ethics of using, quote, the People's House for political purposes. Both conventions featured references to faith, which is of great interest to us here, and featured appearances by a number of Catholics. The Democrats had prayers from Sister Simone Campbell of Network, a Catholic social justice lobbying organization, and from Father James Martin, not to mention a Catholic nominee himself. The Republican convention featured a prayer from New York Cardinal Timothy Dolan, a brief speech by pro life activist Abby Johnson, former Notre Dame football coach Lou Holtz, Cummington High School teen Nicholas Sandman, and sister Dee Dee Byrne, who declared Trump to be, quote, the most pro-life president this nation has ever had, end quote. So, you know, Heidi, you are a journalist, somebody who well-trained in theology. You are somebody who is in the mix of reporting, particularly in this political season. What do you make of these two conventions? What do you think particularly of this Catholic ethos that seemed to be present either explicitly or implicitly in both of these conventions? Well, Dan and David, I am a bit of a political junkie, so I did spend a lot of evenings watching all the convention footage, although admittedly a little less of the Republican one since I was spending some time on the beach there too. So I wasn't surprised by the strong use of religion that the Republicans used. It was used often as an attack. Much of it was about the Democratic Party's position about abortion. So we had a number of speakers who raised that issue in terms of Joe Biden as a Catholic supporting a party platform that supports the legalization of abortion. But I think it's getting harder and harder to say with a straight face that Trump is the most pro-life president at any time when we have a thousand people a day dying from a disease that his administration has mismanaged from the get-go. What was a little more surprising to me 
was the amount of God talk at the Democratic convention, because that's a party where they've been a little hesitant in the past to wear their faith on their sleeve. So we know that some of us think that that was a mistake on the part of Hillary Clinton to not be more overt about her own beliefs. So not only does Biden have as his one of his campaign slogans this idea of the battle for the soul of the nation, we had a number of speakers at the convention mentioning him as a man of faith. If you haven't already read the profile at NCR that our new national correspondent Chris White did of Biden that really talks about his background as a Catholic and how it influences his life as a politician, I highly recommend it. So a lot of God talk on both weeks, one a little more surprising than the other for me. Maybe we can talk a bit about the Democratic Convention first, since sequentially it came first. Heidi, you mentioned a lot of God talk, which was my experience as well. I, I watched much of, of that convention and was, uh, as a Catholic, as a, as, a, as a priest, as a theologian, as somebody engaged also in, in concern for the future of this country and its current crises and politics and so forth, I was pleasantly surprised and very happy to see that. And I think one of the things from my vantage point that was so compelling is that it's not a fabrication. I mean, you'll see some of these attacks from the right against Joe Biden, and they're usually motivated by the abortion issue. That's like the big issue for a lot of folks. And then there are all these kind of subsequent issues that we can talk about, too. You know, all of a sudden, and I know David's got lots of thoughts about Marxism, but people will say like, well, tr you know, Joe Biden, <laughs> as convoluted and false as this is, claim that he's some sort of radical Marxist, anarchist, and that's against church teaching and so forth. All that is baloney. I'll leave it to David to get into that. But one of the things that I found so mind-blowing was these kind of missives on social media from various folks, oftentimes defending President Trump or from the GOP, who kept talking about how God was omitted from the Democratic Convention. God was, Somehow the Democrats, when they opened each night of the convention with the Pledge of Allegiance, they dropped God out of the pledge. That's just patently untrue. Like That's factually errant. It's a, it's a lie. It's not true. I mean, and I saw some people raising this, but it seems to me now that, that religion, as you say, becomes an attack, that even this issue of whether or not somebody says God becomes an issue. And I'm like, how are you to make sense of this? Because it's it's so insane to me anyways. It's so insane. I don't know what you two think about this. but So one of the things about the Democratic Party is that it's attempting to build coalitions across multiple, let's say, ideological lines. It's trying to be a tent that actually includes very disparate positions. And one of those positions is there. there's a large contingent of the Democratic Party that does not identify with the Christian faith, whether that means that they're simply a different Abrahamic faith or that they are no faith at all, or that they're coming from a new age spirituality. Like there's a lot of options there. There's a lot more homogeneity expected in the Republican Party oftentimes. That's an interesting point that I think we could kind of keep in the background for several of the conversations today. And that is, is pluralism American? Is the possibility of having multiple viewpoints around issues a really American thing, or is homogeneity the true mark of Americanness and patriotism? I think if you were to do straw polls at these two conventions, you'd get two very different answers to that question. And that's an important thing to keep in mind, is that the basic values about plurality, the basic values about difference of opinion, are, we're seeing some evidence of that in the very structure of these conventions. And that is part of why... When we look back two and three conventions, we can see real struggles around God talk and real moments where, you know, the question about should we even keep faith in the platform that happened at the Democratic convention, I think three conventions ago, that comes up. 
And that gets pounced upon by the religious right, that gets pounced upon by the conservative right as, well, this is an indication that they're not interested in God at all. I think that the the more complex story is that those that are involved in democratic politics as part of the Democratic Party are interested in a, a kind of more robust and complex conversation about religious freedom and the inclusion of God talk in the public sphere rather than they simply want to eliminate it altogether. But the easier soundbite, the easier bumper sticker is just they want to eliminate it. Now... How does the Democratic Party counter that? I'm not entirely sure because I'm I'm not part of Democratic Party politics. I caucus with the Democrats oftentimes, but I don't consider myself a Democrat. And so I'm an outsider to these conversations. And so oftentimes I'm left wondering myself, why can't they do a better job at actually speaking to this from their, when they have the national stage, why haven't they clarified that message? I don't have an answer to that. I wonder if either of you two have a sense of why they haven't been able to clarify that message yet. I'll jump in here. I mean, I do think that they did do a good job of talking about God at the convention or about faith more generally. But as one of the columnists who wrote for NCR after the conventions, Melinda Henenberger said, maybe they were talking about two different gods there at the conventions. And there were very different portrayals of God. And I think what happens uh, to what you're describing on social media, Dan, is that Religion be kind of signals a broader mindset for people. So when you say Biden is a Catholic in name only, when you have Lou Holt saying that, he's signaling to other people who think the way he does about a number of things and saying, you're in my tribe of how we view God and how we view religion and even how we view America. So I think there were two very different worldviews presented uh, one week right after another, and it, it was kind of a stark contrast, even if both were using the language of faith. I find that very striking, and I really appreciated Hennenberger's column because this perspective of two different gods, not only is that, I think, true. I mean, I'm thinking about it as a theologian. The God that was oftentimes presented or referred to in the second week in the, the GOP convention was unfamiliar to me. And though people of good faith and goodwill could disagree with some aspects of, let's say, the democratic platform, whether it's about abortion access and so forth. The truth is, what was reflected was a genuine faith that's in keeping with the theological traditions and the scriptural traditions holding and, and, and articulation of who God is and who we are called to be in terms of doing this together. Like There were themes that kept being echoed. It's the we, it's the us. We do this together. It's about healing the nation. It's about supporting one another. It's about justice and peace. And you know, another thing that I found very striking about, in contrast around God language and faith in the two weeks, is that I thought actually both conventions modeled each of their respective bases view of religion, or at least the political exercise of religion. What I mean by that is that the Democratic Party, in its presentation, both with Jim Martin and Sister Simone Campbell, as well as sitting political figures, Chris Coons was one, you know, a Democratic senator or former senator, and others who spoke about faith, their own and Joe Biden's, in a way that was both personal, but also not impositional. It wasn't, it wasn't imposing on others. And I think that's something that is modeled well, that to David's question earlier about homogenization, is this everybody has to think and be exactly the same, or is it about I can act in a democratic society for the common good, which is a key Catholic principle, without shoving my particular religious beliefs or tradition down the throats of others. Meanwhile, the second week 
we saw faith being displayed in purely demonstrable terms. Like it was used as a symbol or a signal, a signal to kind of provide a veneer over what I think is a lot of anti-religious, anti-faith, anti-Christian sort of principles, practices, and policies. And we see that with things like, you know, Sister Didi, who got up there and and said this incredibly outrageous line, quote, the most pro-life president this nation has ever had is Donald Trump. Well, that's factually wrong. That's simply inerrant. And it's, it's an odd sort of claim to make to begin with, because no U.S. president, by virtue of their office, can be entirely, quote, pro-life in the consistent ethical sense that Catholic social teaching requires. And so, that, you know, that goes across the board. Furthermore, Donald Trump in his administration's policies, many of which were presented you know, by him in his speech or by surrogates at the convention are deeply, deeply antithetical to to Catholic and Christian life issues, you know, immigration perspectives, gun issues, you know, we could go on and on and on. So, I mean, to me, I I felt like there was an honesty, believe it or not, in both conventions and reflecting how at least the political party leaders view religion. And that, if I may, I know I'm talking a lot here, but, but I'm reminded of that parable in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, where Jesus talks about a father who has two sons, and it's not the prodigal son, but the father who has two sons, and he tells them they need to go work in the field. And the first one says, yes, dad, I will, and says the right words, and then goes off and doesn't. And the second son says, screw you, dad, I'm not working today. I want to go to the mall with my friends. But he, in turn, goes and does what's necessary. He does the father's will. And I feel like there's a lesson there in, in the parable from my vantage point of these two conventions. The Republicans talk a lot about God, but what we see in the policies of the current administration are very, very contrary to this God talk. Meanwhile, the Democrats are not keen. They're they're notably allergic at times to religious language, but a lot of their policies, not all of them, I'm not making a sweeping claim, but but collectively the sum of the sum total tends to be more life-focused in terms of whole life, consistent ethic of life. I want to ask a, a kind of strange question, and it has to do with the new evangelization, because the notion from the church is that we need to be using media channels to be making disciples and to be increasing the conversation about the Catholic faith and to be drawing people to the Catholic faith. I know that both the Democratic Convention and the Republican Convention are designed to try and gather voters, but I wonder about Catholic participation in those kind of public forum from the standpoint of the new evangelization. I will say when I saw Sister Dee Dee Byrne get up and make the speech that she made, the conversation that I had with my wife after after that was, I don't know how I can be publicly Catholic anymore. I don't know how I can be a part of an organization that allows this kind of speech in alliance with this kind of administration. And so from a standpoint of evangelization, from the standpoint of gathering disciples to the truth, and from the standpoint of inviting people to come and join the beauty and the truth that I see in the Catholic faith, I saw both conventions as being different sides of a coin of failure in terms of an evangelizing thing, something that would actually be useful for the furtherance of the church and the world. But I'm wondering, as I say that, was that just my reaction, or did you have a similar reaction, or do you think about public participation of Catholics in these kinds of conventions in different ways? That's an interesting point, David, and I guess I was also thinking about what you were saying about pluralism. It reminded me that the Democratic Convention was about showing a diversity and acceptance of diversity in the United States. And among that diversity are people who are not religious. So I think that's been part of the reluctance to speak about religion more overtly 
on the part of the Democratic Party in the past. So, no, I don't think like a sister Dee Byrne is a good face of Catholicism for, you know, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who may be leaning towards the Democratic Party's policies. That said, you know, I'm not sure how much having Sister Simone or a, a James Martin up there does a lot either to counteract what was really a strong push the following week. And it wasn't just Sister Dee It was also Lou Holtz. It was also Nicholas Sandman, you know, who we all know from his MAGA hat after the March for Life. There's a lot more presentation of the Catholic faith as supporting the Trump administration and policies. Um, and I find that problematic. Does that reach out to some folks too? I think it does. To people looking for certainty and who are fearful, I think if they're able to use faith to justify voting their fears, especially as we see this law and order approach that's being taken by Trump, I think that has a evangelizing, although not in a good way, effect too. Yeah, I would agree. I, I agree with you, Heidi, wholeheartedly. I think, you know, a couple things. One is, you know, David, to your point about evangelization, you know, Heidi kind of hit the ball out of the park just there and identifying, you know, it depends on what we're evangelizing for. What is the church we envision? And I I like, Heidi, your point about the fear, you know, if you're stoking your base because you want them to vote out of a place of fear. Well, I've got a news flash for everybody who's in that position who identifies as Christian. It's called read the gospel. <laughs> Every other word out of Jesus's mouth, particularly in the post-resurrection scenes when the disciples are most afraid, when the church is coming to birth at Pentecost, when they're so uncertain and frightened for fear that the same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. His first words are always, be not afraid be not afraid. In fact, that was something that Joe Biden in his recent speech after the conventions from Pittsburgh made reference to John Paul II's invocation of exactly Jesus's words. You know, it wasn't JP2 came up with it. It was Christ, you know, be not afraid. And it's something I know I've talked and written a lot about over the years, and it's something I feel very strongly about. And this is another category to kind of compare and contrast what is the vision not only for the country, but faith in this country. And if it's rooted in fear, it's not Christianity. It's simply not. It goes literally against the words of Jesus over and over and over again. It goes against the words of the prophets as well. Right. And so so I think voting their fears is a great way to think about what is the takeaway message. And I also appreciate this this point too that both of you have raised about, you know, people of no religious tradition, the N O N E S, that I, I, I agree that I think a lot of the personally Catholic, and I think that's important, with the exception of Timothy Dolan, who's only the Archbishop of New York, by the way. He only has pastoral responsibility and authority in the Diocese of New York. And all the other Catholics, lay and religious and ordained, they have no exercise of authority. That's important in church circles because what they say, it's not that it's unimportant, that we don't need to listen to it, that it's not worth consideration. It's just that I think Catholics in a digital age see bishops tweeting here and there, or they see priests or nuns tweeting or speaking at conventions here and there, and they assume that that is representative of what they ought to believe or appropriate. And the truth is, and this is important, it sucks. I'll be you know, kind of blunt about it. It's very unfortunate for the people in the dioceses in which bishops are overtly sectarian. And I think of the Bishop of Tyler in Texas, I think of Providence, Rhode Island, some of the kind of well-known cases. But that's bad news for the people in that diocese. Bishop Tobin, the Bishop of Providence, Rhode Island, has no authority, has no uh, juridical or pastoral responsibility outside of his local church. And that's really important. And so I, I think... 
this is a really messy time, but that kind of attitude, A, doesn't reflect authentic Christianity or Catholic teaching, and B, is David, to your point, what are we evangelizing for? A church that's focused on fear, a church that's focused on division, a, a church that's focused on saying one thing in voice, but acting another way. Because I think it's worth noting too, if I may, on this contentious issue to bring up, the data is clear that under democratic presidential administrations, the rate of abortions always goes down. And that's in part because of the larger policy platforms that create a social safety net so that people do not feel like they have to resort to that when they encounter an unplanned pregnancy. And yet, the more restrictive sort of efforts that are part and parcel of the anti-abortion language of the GOP platform or certain politicians, th- those numbers always increase. And I don't think that's accidental. It's it's correlative. And I think it's important for people to remember that. Now, I'm not saying that that's because I'm very much like the U.S. bishops. I'm very much against us being a one-issue people. We're not. But if that's your one issue, you need to think seriously, I believe, about what is it that you're actually working for? What is it that you're actually voting for? Well, and we will continue talking about politics in this episode and this season. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, and I'm here with Dan Haran and David Dalt. Our next topic kind of flows from our first one. We're going to be talking about politics more generally. At the end of August, Catherine O'Neill, executive director of an organization named Catholics for Trump, sent out a tweet that said, quote, you cannot be a Catholic and a Democrat. The Catholics for Trump organization is co-chaired by former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, and former acting White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney. The organization claims that, quote, re-electing President Trump will ensure continued victories in pro-life issues and religious freedom. This highlights something that seems to come up pretty much every time there's an election these days. The claim gets made that there is only one way for faithful Catholics to be involved in the political process. And often that boils down to single issue and single party voting. This gets tricky to talk about. And I can say this as an editor who runs articles that that show both sides, because we see many organizations with the word Catholic in their names making this call for single issue, single party voting. But at the same time, the actual Catholic position on voting, the one put forward by the U.S. bishops, is way more nuanced. But as so often happens in American politics, the voices shouting the loudest are the ones that get heard. So let's start out with this question. David, if you're a faithful Catholic, do you have to vote Republican? Well, that is the rhetoric that oftentimes gets used. If you look at media like EWTN, they never say that explicitly, but they certainly imply it both on their website and in their programming. It is a very strong push for many Catholics, and I think many Catholics are confused over this point. They think that there is a a one-stop shop for political expression. Now, that is not historically correct. In fact, if we look back before the 1980s, Catholics were by and large allied with the Democratic Party, not with the Republican 
Republican Party. And we can talk a lot about why that shift occurred. But here in 2020, the claim that was made by the uh, executive director of Catholics for Trump that you cannot be a Catholic and a Democrat, that's just patently false. That's canonically false. And that's not something that any bishop, to my knowledge, has said. Now, maybe, Dan, you, you can correct me on that. Yeah, I'll just jump in and say, I mean, there are plenty of bishops who are saying that, but they're, to your earlier point, they're wrong. They're wrong. I mean, by the, they're wrong by the USCCB's own guidance. They're wrong according to the church's highest teaching, which is that of an ecumenical council. And Gaudium et Spes at Vatican II makes clear that the conscience is the highest moral authority. And so the bishops have a responsibility to help form consciences, but they cannot say, and to your point, it is wrong to say that you can or cannot be aligned with or vote for a political party or a certain politician. Okay, so let me then ask a question that often gets raised, and in fact, I'm pulling this explicitly from the EWTN website. So oftentimes the language that gets used is, if you vote with the Democrats, you are either formally or materially cooperating with the evil act of another, and in this particular case, the evil act is they allow and they allow for the legalization of abortion. So let's dig into this about the the notion of cooperation with evil. What does that mean, and what does it mean to do that in a political sphere? Well, a couple things. First, you know, there there are plenty of resources that are available from trusted sources, and here I'm I'm thinking of Catholic theological ethicists, and and perhaps one of the the most impactful and knowledgeable on this subject, particularly of Catholic social ethics and uh, U.S. kind of law and politics, is uh, Professor Kathy Caveney at Boston College, who's written not only for NCR and Commonweal and America, but is is one of the leading scholars at the about this intersection. And so I, I recommend folks, you know, looking at some of her writings on this, and, and so, including in NCR and in America. But one of the things that ethicists point out is that it's true. This there there is this this principle of cooperation. It's one of the evaluating principles in the Catholic moral tradition, and there is called remote and proximate cooperation. You can talk about material cooperation. There are a lot of different categories, and quite frankly, I'm not interested in getting into that because it can be distilled rather simply for the average Catholic Christian to think about when it comes to voting. And this is something that goes all the way back to 2004, when then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith. And you might recall, some of our listeners might recall, 2004 was the last time that the Democrats had a Catholic nominee for president, and that was John Kerry. And there's a similar sort of thing, you know, it's Groundhog Day in politics land, where certain bishops and certain priests were denying Kerry communion in the same way that Joe Biden has encountered and other politicians have too. And there was a lot of tension, and it was actually from the mistakes of the 2004 campaign and the way that a lot of U.S. bishops handled it, that the USCCB began issuing very clearly guidance through this forming faithful, uh, forming consciences for faithful citizenship. And so one of the things that Ratzinger says, and and he as the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith is sort of the kind of church's lead theologian. That's his role there. And he's, he clarifies and he says, yes, Catholics can in good conscience vote for somebody for whom part of their personal political or their political party's platform includes something like a pro-choice you know agenda however 
The distinction is you cannot vote for that person because of that issue. So if you're voting for that person because you want to promote more abortions, for instance, or make it more accessible or what have you, that becomes the rub. That becomes the tensive point, as opposed to voting for somebody despite that. And so that's where the role of conscience comes in, because you have to take into consideration a lot of a lot of issues. Some are competing, but they're also compounding. And that oftentimes is either misunderstood or ignored entirely, including, sadly, by some individual bishops, many of whom have quite a large social media following. And Heidi, as you introduced the segment, you mentioned that, you know, oftentimes we encounter organizations that have the name Catholic in them. And you you work for one that has the name Catholic in the name, the National Catholic Reporter, but doesn't necessarily have an official ecclesial connection to the wider church. And so when we see these organizations that, that are using the name Catholic and are taking either editorial stances or political stances, that's an interesting and complex issue. I'd love to get your perspective on, as you're reporting about these different organizations, kind of what we're to look for as Catholics as we see organizations that have Catholic in the name. Yeah, so we, we get plenty of pushback anytime we run something that uh, readers or, or non-subscribers Think that isn't Catholic enough and ask us to remove the Catholic in the name of, a, of our newspaper. I mean, I would say that there's going to be a lot going on in the next two months that Catholics and even non-Catholics are going to need to pay attention to. I'll give a little preview. Uh, two stories that are being worked on by our national correspondent are going to look at all these groups that are out there, Catholics for Trump, Believers for Biden, all these organizations that are getting involved in the political sphere and just kind of laying out, here's who, who they are, here's who runs them, here's where they get their money, both those supporting Trump and those supporting Biden. I will say, I was a little surprised to see that Network, the Catholic Social Justice Lobby that uh, was founded by a number of women's religious communities and is headed by Sister Simone Campbell, who did not in her prayer before the Democratic uh, Convention say any of this, but who have a campaign or at least a press release that says Catholics shouldn't vote for Trump. So they're really doing the same thing that's happening on the Republican side and saying, if you really you know, examine your conscience, you really can't in any way vote for Trump. And I do think that an informed conscience could come to that conclusion. But for a Catholic organization to have a campaign about that, I have to say is a little surprising to me. Yeah, I would agree, Heidi. And and I have tremendous, tremendous respect for Network and for Sister Simone and for the, the whole staff there. And and I think they do excellent, excellent advocacy work and lobbying work on behalf of the most marginalized oftentimes in, in, in the country and, and in our communities. Um, but I was surprised by that too, and, and not pleasantly surprised because I, I don't think that's the answer. I think for a couple of reasons, and, and you know, if I may build on your observation, which is one, from my vantage point, the network audience, the men and women's religious communities that sponsor network and the individuals who do as well, my sense is because they're already committed to a lot of these issues, they weren't necessarily on the fence about whether, you know, who they were going to vote for. So whether it was necessary, that's another question. The other thing is to this point about, you know, what theologians sometimes these days call digital magisterium, the conflation, the confusion around what is authentically a Catholic teaching, who has teaching authority, who has the right, you know, to talk about these things or to inform consciences. 
So I don't know if this is exactly your take. I mean, you mentioned it was surprising, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my perspective was one of, I, I don't think that was the right move. I think there are other ways one can use their soft influence or soft power to influence positively the formation of conscience. So for instance, instead of saying something so blanketedly, they could have said as an organization, here are things that are of equal weight or importance that are life issues. Immigration, right? The separation of children from families at the border, you know, the handling of the coronavirus pandemic, all these kinds of things, income inequality, racism, all this sort of stuff. These are also things that need to be taken into consideration. And to do so, I think would have been a better move. That's my personal take, but I don't know David if you th had any thought about that too. Why well, I, I mean as you've been as you've been talking and as as both of you have been saying something th there's something that's been rattling around in the back of my head and that is so the the unilateral call that from Catholics for Trump that you can't be a democrat and vote for uh, you, you can't be a democrat and a catholic at the same time. I'm also thinking of rhetoric that I hear from the Democratic Party that says we have basically no room here for pro-life people. And and there there's been a moving line on that. But but that has been a difficult point for me to kind of reconcile because it's one thing when you say we're we're trying to encompass a lot of different perspectives here and we're going to have conversations about those perspectives. That's that's one position that I feel comfortable from a standpoint of my conscience sort of allying with. It's different when you actually take a unilateral position as a plank or you say there really is a litmus test and the litmus test is you have to be in support of the possibility of abortion or those kinds of things. So I, for me as a as a kind of outsider who caucuses with the Democratic Party, I'm fine Finding when either party is taking a kind of unilateral position, and I recognize that they're not fundamentally equivalent, but I also, I, you know, saying that you can't be a Catholic and a Democrat is one type of unilateral position. Saying that anyone who votes with the Democratic Party must be open to or allow for the possibility of abortion, saying that there's no room for someone who disagrees with that in the party, that begins to take a position that sounds to me more like what the Republicans are saying or what I'm hearing from Catholics for Trump. And so, I mean, I think it's a very complex and nuanced sort of moment here. Well, I would I would just say, yeah, that's an, you know, when we have it going on in both sides or both sides playing this using the same uh, strategies, it, it's not helping. But I will just make one note about network, which is they are also trying to do other things, raising up the other issues. They have this equally sacred scorecard, which tries to get people away from single issue voting. And I don't want to dismiss the importance of abortion as a life issue, but I do think this year more than any other, and I'm not, I'm not trying to defend network here, but it's possible that they see the other life issues as so critical this year between the pandemic, the advancing of global warming, um, and, and just the many, many other things, the, the treatment of immigrants and detention centers that are really life and death issues as well. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's a, a really important thing. I wonder, you know, I wonder if if they looked out at the landscape and saw, well, here are these bishops on Twitter, here are these religious women and men and diocesan priests who are speaking out so strongly, there's no sort of more inclusive perspective that responds in kind. And so in, in that sense, I'm, I am sympathetic to the impulse, but I still, I'm still a little bit uncertain about whether that whether that in the end is the most effective way, like you're saying, I think that that's a, it's an it's an open question, which which raises something to me. I mean, Heidi, you mentioned earlier that that Chris White's working on some pieces about these 
faith-based political kind of um, affinity groups, so Catholics for Trump, Catholics for Biden. I, I'm wondering what you two think about that and its effectiveness. I, I used to have a one perspective, and I have a different perspective now, and I'm and I'm not entirely. It's not well formed yet, so I'm curious. What, what do you think this is useful? Is it helpful? Does it muddy the issue? Is it too divisive? What do you think? Well, I know some of those groups are officially parts of the campaign. So the campaign is broken up into specific outreaches to different demographics. So I think Catholics for Biden and Catholics for Trump are actually parts of their campaign. But when you have groups like CatholicVote.org, which is the one that a number of people are getting mailers in the mail from, I had written about them previously about their use of geofencing to capture data about Catholics who attend church regularly, to especially in key battleground states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, to try to then target those voters whom they are pretty sure are going to vote Republican because of the choice of parishes that they targeted and therefore help uh, Trump get reelected. I think when you're looking at groups like that, that are outside the campaign, then at the very least, we need to educate people about who these groups are who their leaders are, who else they're connected with, how they're funded, et cetera. Well, I think that speaks to an issue that is important for all Catholics, and that is when we are trying to find out what our conscience is telling us to do, there's a discernment process that has to go on. And in 2020, that discernment means that we're having to tease out the very emotional and sometimes very subtle ways that we have been influenced by things like media and social media. You know, if you swim in a pool, you're going to get some of the chlorine in your system. And we swim in these media pools every day. And whether we're on Twitter or whether we're watching EWTN or whether we're reading National Catholic Reporter, we're going to get ideological perspectives from the pools that we swim in. And part of our conscience, part of the forming of our conscience has to be figuring out those ways in which we have been kind of unreflexively influenced by these things. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone. I recognize that I find myself having knee-jerk responses to various prompts and various moments. And that, that, that's of concern to me, but also I think that in the formation of conscience, it is possible to to make this kind of discernment. Well, and, and going back, you know, and maybe I'm 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 coming across wishy washy about this, which is fine because this is an unusual time, and we again deal with in the Catholic tradition both and right. It's it's more gray than it is black and white, despite whatever p- people's particular agendas are. The the church in its teaching is is not as I shouldn't say not as clear. It can be clear, but it's more nuanced than I think most people appreciate. So that's understandable. But back to both network and some other initiatives that that seem to be more allied with the Biden campaign, or if not explicitly allied with the Biden campaign, then at least recognizing a lot of the the problematic, dangerous, and deeply flawed elements of the Trump administration and the Trump campaign. And what I think is striking is the ways in which those who do exercise official church teaching, magisterial teaching, the bishops in their respective dioceses, and the USCCB as a collection, a regional collection of bishops, the way that they seem to be responding to A, religious priests, parishes, what have you, or bishops that that take the side that le- that appears to lean toward Biden or against Trump and the way that they react to those who oftentimes overtly endorse Trump, as we've seen with, you know, Frank Pavone, who is the priests for life person who is very explicitly violating canon law and the instruction of his own bishop, as well as 
a number of these bishops, like Thomas Tobin of Providence, Rhode Island, and Sitka and others, who on Twitter at least will say these statements that we've been talking about, that Catholics cannot vote for a certain candidate. Well, that's the same thing in effect by omission of if endorsing the in a two-party system the other candidate. And so what I find very striking, though, is whenever, like was the case in the Archdiocese of Boston recently, there was a priest who in kind of came out in defense of the Biden campaign and said, you know, Catholics need to vote against the current president, this sort of thing. And immediately there was from the chancery and from the Cardinal Archbishop of Boston, a statement that was basically responding to that for all officials in the diocese, including clergy, not to speak out about politics. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, but there were lots and lots of others who have been in their parishes from their ambos, from their pulpits, in their parish bulletins, on their websites, in their social media, saying things along the GOP line and and reiterating a falsehood about abortion as the only issue. I don't know if you two have thoughts about this, but it drives me absolutely mad because, and this is, again, a quasi-defense, maybe not a defense, but a quasi-explanation for Network's view, which is they, as an independent organization, religious organization in the Catholic tradition, have some flexibility to state something so overtly. Meanwhile, Anyone who seems to hint in that direction gets shut down. I mean, do you have thoughts about how the the Episcopal response has been, and, and including, you know, some of these large media influences like EWTN and their outlets? You know, what what do we make of this? Well, I guess one uh, complicating factor that I would just bring up is that some organizations, like CatholicVote.org and like Network, do have a tax status that allows them to be more political. So I think when you're talking about clergy or other official organizations that have a tax status that as religious organizations, they're supposed to be staying out of partisan politics, that's part of the the complicating factor as well. But certainly, I think what we've seen, just in the same way we said that the religious language seems to be more overt on the Republican Party side and to come down more strongly about where you have to stand to be considered uh, correctly religious. I think we also have seen more reaction from clergy or from bishops and from church leaders about certain issues. It's just, it's the reality of who has the power in the church and who has the money in the church and makes the loudest uh, noise about things. And we'll be bringing in these kind of political questions all through our season this time around on the Francis Effect as we move towards the 2020 election. But for now, we're going to need to pause. Uh, I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. You're listening to the Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Horan. Every year from September 1st to October 4th, the ecumenical Christian community commemorates what is known as the Season of Creation. It began in 1989 when ecumenical patriarch Demetrios I proclaimed the 1st of September as a day of prayer for creation for Orthodox Christians. Subsequently, other Christian denominations joined the celebration with the World Council of Churches promoting the season in 2001, and Pope Francis bringing the Catholic Church into the fold in 2015, the same year he released his encyclical Laudato Si on the care of our common home. 
According to the Season of Creation website, the Season of Creation is a time to renew our relationship with our Creator and all creation through celebration, conversion, and commitment together. It's a time for Christians to pray, reflect, learn, and act in care for creation. This year's season of creation also coincides with the 5th anniversary of Laudato Si and the 25th anniversary of Earth Day, both of which were commemorated earlier in 2020. With all that's going on in the world today, from a global pandemic to a heated presidential election, Dan, why should Catholics care about this season of creation? They should care, first and foremost, because both the global pandemic and this heated presidential election are tied in some ways to global climate change. This is a front and center issue, though it doesn't oftentimes get the uh, media attention or the popular recognition that it deserves. You know, I've said, like others, many others, including the Holy Father himself, Pope Francis, that global climate change is bluntly, an existential crisis. And it's it's a life issue, not actually one among others. And this is me speaking, not Pope Francis, though I think actually his teachings, both in the encyclical Laudato Si and his subsequent comments over the last five years in particular, and more recently too, in the wake of the pandemic, suggest this or, or support this, which is that if we look at pro-life, meaning from you know the pro-life kind of platform of the Catholic social teaching is is geared toward recognition of the inherent dignity and value of human life. And the language we use is from uh, conception to natural death, right? And we're talking about the life cycle of a human being and the human family or community more broadly, which is great. And when we talk about particular issues that affect human life, whether it's migration, income inequality, racism, e- euthanasia, abortion, healthcare access, et cetera, all these things are very important, but but they they stay focused under the umbrella of the human family. What global climate change presents to us is an, is a life issue that extends not just to every human person, all 7 billion plus of us on this planet, but to the whole planet and everything else, as Pope Francis says, that shares our common home. And so for me... And I've I've written about this and I've spoken about this. And so this is my this is Dan Haran's perspective. I think that it is the single most important issue. Now, people will jump down my throat because they'll say, Dan, you often talk about we're not a one issue people, this sort of thing. I think you can hold both of these things together. Because when it comes to the integrity of Catholic social teaching on the human person, we are not a single issue people because to be so is to select one group of people over another, the unborn over the elderly or white people over black people or what have you. So we have to maintain in the human family a consistent ethic of life. But when it comes to life itself, the the kind of overarching umbrella of God's community of creation of all life whatsoever, then global climate change is the biggest threat. And so I'll just say this, and, and I'm curious to hear what you both think about this, that Catholics need to be aware of this, especially in light of the global pandemic, because newsflash, as scientists have pointed out, and I've written about this as well, if you thought this is difficult, and it is, and it's up to now been a once in a century sort of experience, it's only going to get worse and magnified as a consequence of the effects of global climate change. Get ready for pandemics every generation, or God forbid, even more frequently than that. The second thing is the presidential election. This is an issue that affects the life, every life on this planet, human and non-human alike. And so if this is not taken seriously, if it's not recognized, if there aren't plans to try to respond to this collectively and at times painfully, 
then I, I think that's a really important moral issue that a well-formed conscience needs to register. And quite frankly, the Republican Party is continuing to suggest that this is a hoax or downplay the seriousness of it uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of environmental refugees, in the midst of growing inequality around the globe and extinction of species. I just cannot say enough about how important it is. And so every September 1st through October 4th, which is the Feast of St. Francis, Christians are called to reflect and pray and learn and, and, and educate one another about this. But boy, does it seem the most urgent right now. Well, so let me make sure that I've heard this correctly, because what it sounds to me like you're saying is that when we talk about single issue Catholic voting, we can find individual political issues. But when we look at climate change, it, it's not a single issue the way that other issues are single issues. What I'm hearing you saying is that it really is the foundation that undergirds any number of key issues that we're looking at right now, which is like access to resources or the ability of people to travel unhindered from border to border. And all of these are in the, the dignity of human persons and the dignity of all life. Like all of these are Catholic issues. And and what I'm hearing you saying is that is that climate change sort of undergirds all of that. And so when we look at this as an issue, we're not just looking at one issue, but we're looking at this as sort of a way that opens up to a multiplicity of issues, all of which speak to these questions of, of life and the maintenance of life. Now, when I'm saying that, am I hearing you right? Yeah, I think you are. And, and let me just dive just a slight bit deeper on this. And that is at the risk of using kind of technical philosophical language. It, it's, it's a singular issue or the most important issue insofar as we understand global climate change affecting the condition of the possibilities of any of the other life issues. In other words, what good is it to advocate for laws against euthanasia in order to protect the longevity of our senior citizens? Or what, what good is it to advocate on behalf of the unborn if there's no world or condition for them to live in after being born? And the same thing is true about so many other things. One other illustration of this is comes right out of Catholic teaching. At the, again, Catholic social teaching that comes to us from Laudato Si, where Pope Francis says explicitly, so this is Catholic teaching, that water is a fundamental human right. It is not something to be commercialized. It's not something that's optional. It's not something that only a select privileged few have access to. And we see that in our own backyard, case in point, Flint, Michigan, and the travails that that, that community has faced that's disproportionately a minoritized community, a disproportionately impoverished community that has suffered. And, and this is the kind of thing that is a fundamental life issue. It, you know, whether you're talking about an abortion or income inequality or euthanasia or torture or war, these things become secondary if you don't have water in order to live another day. I want to pivot the conversation to Heidi now because I am a layperson and I am sort of well informed about Catholic issues and I'm in public Catholic circles and I've been that way for more than a decade. And you both joked with me as we were prepping for, for the episode because I had never heard of the season of creation before. And so even as a person who tries to be a relatively well-informed Catholic, this is the first time that I'm really encountering this as an issue. And so Heidi, you work in Catholic media. How well is this known amongst Catholic lady? Is this talked about? And how can the word be better propagated to uh, well-meaning but ill-informed bozos like me? <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for that segue where I get to promote uh, the project NCR has had for a number of years called Earthbeat, where we are specifically about educating people about the intersection of faith and climate change and other issues of the environment. So I maybe wouldn't have known about <clears throat> the season of creation 
if it weren't for Earthbeat as well and for my job, because it probably isn't something that Catholics on the ground in their parishes are hearing a lot about unless they have at the parish level some sort of environmentally organized group. Over at EarthBeat, in addition to all the reporting and and columns that they already do, uh, Dan's column uh, last week ended up on EarthBeat as well, where he talked about environmental racism. They're doing a series of spiritual reflections that are based on photography um, from around the world. And what I really like about those reflections, well, first of all, they're in English and Spanish. So our new editor of EarthBeat, uh, Barbara Fraser, is based in Lima, Peru, and so very near the Amazon, and also very um, in tune with climate change in that part of the world. But they bring us back to what the original idea of that day of creation was, which was a day of prayer. So tying this, you know, clearly political, and as you say, Dan, moral issue into our faith life and the need for prayer, both of concern and for action, But also, I kind of think of just sort of the joy of creation, of getting out in creation, in the world, in nature. So many people, I think, are able to experience God's goodness that way, too, and then be committed to making sure it's around for the next generations. Yeah. And David, you may or may not be a bozo, but you are certainly not alone in not being aware of this. And and part of that is because the Catholic Church has been late to the game. Let's be honest about it. This has been a celebration. This has been a deliberate focus that our Eastern Orthodox Christian sisters and brothers have been way more attentive to than we in the Christian West have been. And so it's you know, Benedict XVI was actually really quite uh, a pioneer in terms of Catholic leaders and in, in terms of popes who front and centered the environment as, a, as an urgent concern. And we, we got to give him a lot of credit for that. And John Paul II was was obviously somebody who talked a lot about uh, what, what Cardinal Bernadine would call the seamless garment, all these various life issues that come together. But Pope Francis took that up a notch. And I think, you know, it's it's evident in the opening section of Laudato Si where he cites the Orthodox as as leading the way in the Christian community on this topic. And so, you know, it's only been five years, actually, that the Catholic Church has been an official co-sponsor of this season of creation, and it is an official co-sponsor, and it's something that all Catholics are invited to. I will say this, though, and this is, you know, people can call me a, a, a stereotypical Franciscan, you know, it, it is nice that that the, the season is built around the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi in which it kind of culminates and ends. But I think it's also important for us to realize that this is a month-long, concentrated, deliberate time for reflection and prayer and learning and action, but it shouldn't stop there. And I think this is something that we see, you know, oftentimes with months that are designated, you know, whether it's June in the, in the United States is, is Pride Month for LGBTQ folk, or rather February as is, is African American History Month. It's not that only in February issues that affect people of African descent are worth considering, or only in June, LGBTQ folks are worth considering. But these are moments for us to kind of kind of recharge ourselves, to be renewed in the importance of these subjects. So we're in the midst of it right now, but I want to encourage our listeners and all Catholics and all Christians in general to go to Seasons of Creation, go to that website, go to the program that uh, Heidi was talking about. Uh, and there are other resources out there available as well, uh, and incorporate because I think a good starting point is incorporating the rest of creation into your prayer, but then don't let that be the end. Let it be the beginning of something. 
Well, and I, this is what I wanted to ask, and you, you've talked about going to the website. If a layperson like me hears this segment and says, oh, wow, I didn't realize that this was a thing, and now I, I realize that this is, and I can go to the website, what are some concrete actions at the parish level that congregants can be doing to during this month? I mean, are there are there specific things we can be doing right now as we hear this? Yeah, and just a plug again for the website, which is, again, ecumenical. It's not one particular community. Uh, it's sponsored, co-sponsored by the Vatican and by the World Council of Churches and by the Eastern Orthodox Communions. And if you go to that website, you'll see a link for resources, and you also see a link for different denominations. And if you click the Catholic one, you'll see a video, and you'll see a letter from Pope Francis, and you'll see a letter from from the Vatican's office that deals with human development and care for creation that gives some denominational background. But among the resources, there are prayer services, there are there are examples of organizing small communities to do things and to put their faith into action. And so there's a whole panoply of things. Um, and again, to plug NCR, you know, as a columnist, and then with our executive editor here on the line, can't, can't neglect that. I mean, that's another way in this age of pandemic where we're socially distant, you know, you may not have a parish prayer service, but you can personally, individually, or as a family, you know, take part in, in these reflections and meditations. That's where I want to turn now to Heidi, because Heidi, you're a parent, I'm a parent. How are we as Catholic parents, I mean, when we're talking about climate, we're literally talking about a gift that we are helping to care for, for the generation that we're raising and for their children. What do you do as a parent to help your children understand the importance of these kinds of questions? It's funny you mentioned that, David, last night in our 14-hour car ride home from New Jersey, this issue came up. We started talking about peak oil for some reason and, and a little bit about climate change. And I have to say, it caused my, my children are 11 and 12, it caused them so much anxiety thinking about the enormity of the problem that it made me realize that maybe we need to talk to children about it in a different way that we talk amongst ourselves as adults. But I think connecting it to our faith and to, and to the need to be active in being part of the solution um, is the way that I approach it. So people need to be aware of the problem, but also then think about what can I as an individual, but also join together with other people, people of faith and other people around the world do to help change the trajectory that we're on. What do you do, David? Well, so my children were in a Catholic school and the Catholic school actually did some issues around environmental justice. I don't recall them specifically talking about the season of creation, but maybe they did. But it's the same anxiety that you just mentioned. My daughter came home after these kind of units on climate change, and she was very concerned, and she was wanting to know, what are we doing, and how can we do more? And so it was really, in some ways, the Catholic school, Catholic education that was driving the conversation in our home. But we've tried to be responsive as parents, and we've, we've talked about the ways in which we are being stewards of the resources that we have. And so we have conversations in our family meetings about the ways that we're utilizing some of the things that we have and trying to be very intentional about that. But I, I think, like you're saying, it's a balance because my wife and I tend to be so informed about this that we can actually give information that's very scary to our children and learning when it's appropriate to use those kinds of answers and when it's appropriate to use a different kind of tack that's something that we're still figuring out so we don't have a we don't have a good response yet but we we have a response that's trying to be 
I think, more age-appropriate. But I'm really excited now to dig into this website and to learn some of the resources that are there. And I'm going to be taking a look at some of these photos in NCR as well and sharing them with my kids because I'm excited to have resources that allow me to have these conversations in a way that's maybe not quite so frightening in the data. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't have kids. <laughs> surprise, not surprise, surprise. But I, I have to say, I'm so impressed by the level of engagement of young people. I mean, it's almost a, a cliche when you look at somebody who has been such a global ambassador for the urgency of this climate crisis like Greta Thunberg, but she's not alone. And I think, you know, going back to an earlier segment when we talked about the, the DNC, you know, there were a couple of clips where, where young people were talking about this. And, and I've seen interviews and I've seen various social media posts of, of children. I'm talking about children your kids' ages, you know, that are elementary school age. And, and and they get it and they realize as terrifying as it is, you know, on the one hand, I'm in no position to advise kind of how one engages this with their children. I, I'm not at all qualified to do that. But I have to say, when I hear the children speak, it seems to me very scriptural about hearing the truth, the unvarnished truth come from the mouth of, of these kids who are not interested in political power. They're not interested in corporate sponsorships. They're not interested in big oil or big this or big that. They're interested in are we going to make it through? Or are we basically setting ourselves up to be like the dinosaurs? I mean, that's language kids understand. And and instead of dismissing them, like I see so many people do, you know, rejecting Greta and these other folks, instead of doing that, I, I think we need to learn from them. So I, I don't know, as you two are, are far more expert than me about how best to talk with the kids about this. They know, they're learning, they're smart, they're aware of this. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. Well, I'm grateful for the chance to have these conversations, and I know that we'll be returning to to this topic as well. But for right now, we need to wrap things up. I'm so grateful to you, Dan. I'm so glad to see you again, even if it's over Zoom. And Heidi, I'm ecstatic that you're joining us. Thank you for being here, and I'm so excited for the season. I'm glad that you're that you're joining us for this journey. Thank you, David and Dan. I'm really excited to be here, and I look forward to the rest of the season. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded this show at various locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And likewise, our website website is francisfxpod.com. And if you ever want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's francisefectpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes now going back six seasons, all available in the archives on our website. We're so glad that you're here, and thanks for listening. 
We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of the Francis Effect podcast.